0: So we take like a one-cell human embryo from like a one-cell amoeba. The reason why the amoeba can't think is because of what it is. The reason why the one-cell human embryo can't think is because of how old it is. If you give it enough time, it will develop a brain and the capacity to think.
1: Welcome to Steadfast, a pro-life podcast where we talk about how the pro-life movement is evolving and how you can participate. I'm your host, Sammy Carroll education coordinator at Life Choices Women's Clinic in Phoenix, Arizona, and our prayer is that this podcast inspires you. Welcome to send Everybody. today on Steadfast, we are talking to Father John Parks, an amazing priest from the Diocese of Phoenix and pastor of St. Teresa's Parish, and we get to be nerdy and we talk about logical arguments for the pro-life movement. I hope that this episode helps you develop a valid and sound argument for the pro-life movement for yourself, but I also want you to think of somebody who this might benefit, somebody who maybe needs to hear the logical argument, the scientific argument even, because we dive into that as well. So without further ado, here is my conversation with Father John Parks. Hi, Father. How are you doing?
0: I'm doing great. How are you? Yeah,
1: you know, fairly peachy overall. Welcome to Steadfast. Thank you for saying yes to joining us on this lovely episode about logical arguments, because you know that we are both nerds and we love our logic.
0: Logic's good. Yeah, I, I, uh, I'm pre- I appreciate logic. That's
1: good. <laughs> well, can you tell us about yourself?
0: Sure. Uh, I'm Father Parks. I'm a priest of the Diocese of Phoenix, Arizona. I've been a priest for just over 12 years. I'm the pastor of a church called St. Teresa's in Phoenix. I'm an Arizona native, born and raised here. I have five siblings who all still live here. Um, love being Catholic. Um, been a part of the pro-life movement for, gosh, I don't know, a long time, about as long as I can remember. So that's a little bit about me.
1: Cool. Do you remember when we met? It's been a few years, I think.
0: Was i silver?
1: Uh, maybe but I remember the first question you ever asked me and you asked me to describe my style in three words Mm. this was my real angsty I mean I'm back to black it's now pumpkin season let the inner angst shine but you were you were trying to figure out you know what was up with my angstiness but tell us about your involvement in the pro-life movement (laughs)
0: Yeah, so, I, you know, I went to a Catholic school growing up, so I, as far as I can remember, ever since, I don't know, maybe junior high, I was just aware of abortion. I think uh, it just got clear as I got older. I think it's one of the great gifts of my formation and education. So as far as being aware of abortion and the fact that we were taking the lives of innocent uh, pre-born humans, uh, that's always been kind of in my consciousness, which I, I would think as I got older, realized how much that affected my view of my country, right? When your country justifies something like this, it's kind of shocking. Then I would say in college, I did something called Making Abortion Unthinkable, which was a training and it was very wise. You could go through the training as long as you, and it was free as long as you agreed to give the training within like some certain amount of time, like three or six months. So I went through it with a friend of mine named Melanie Pritchard. We used to give talks together. And so we went through the training and then we, we gave the talk together. And so it was really beautiful because they're really just kind of reproducing themselves and that you hear this content and then you give it on to another person. And when I learned that, I learned some kind of basic pro-life apologetics, I was really struck by how effective they could be when they were shared with love uh, with strangers and really it was largely just through asking questions and telling stories And, uh, yeah, I was surprised at how little people had really thought through the arguments. It was often emotional or it's just what their parents believed, but a lot of people didn't really know why they believed they were either pro-life or pro-choice.
1: Yeah. Let's talk about some of those arguments. Cause I feel like a lot of people, even when they are defending pro-life, they haven't even thought through, they just, you know, they're pro-life and they maybe have not thought out the arguments. Can we talk about some nice, solid and valid sound and valid arguments?
0: Sure. So I think a very simple one this is one that Scott Klusendorf uses. I mean, a lot of people use it as is a, is a syllogism, which is just two premises followed by a conclusion, which is that it's always wrong to intentionally kill innocent human beings. Abortion is the intentional killing of an innocent human being. Therefore, abortion is wrong. And when you have a syllogism like that, there's really only one of three ways that it can be rebutted. One is that it's unsound. Which means that one or more of the premises uh, do not uh, are untrue. Sorry, un- not true, that it's not valid, which means that the conclusion does not logically follow, or that one of the or more of the terms is used in an unclear manner. Those are only one of the three ways you can defeat a syllogism. So it's very simple, it's easy to remember. I'd say another one has been called the 10-second pro-life apologist, which works like this. Um, if it's growing, it must be alive. If it has human parents, it must be human. And human beings like you and I are valuable, aren't we? So those are really kind of right to the point in easy pro-life apologetics.
1: I like it. Matt Walsh, actually, I just read that he said um, that if life isn't worth defending, then nothing is. And I think that in the past, it's been religion versus freedom. And now we're finally getting into more of a science versus emotion, where it, just like you said, like if it's growing... If you know scientifically, 96% of biologists believe that life begins, or they know that life begins at fertilization. And I like how we're becoming more, uh, it's not a religious argument, I should say.
0: That's right. I mean, our argument is really just based in science and in philosophy. And in my experience, well, because I'm a priest, so you can't, you can't miss it. Um, sometimes when I'm making good points, I sometimes feel like people will be like, well, you shouldn't be so like religious or impose that. And and I always find that they're the ones bringing up religion. I'm actually not the one who's bringing it up. I'm just saying, hey, based on science and philosophy, if human beings have value. Then why aren't we protecting the weakest or most least developed members of the human species?
1: Speaking of the development, so I had heard the comparison between preborn babies and toddlers before, but when you talked to the teens at St. Teresa, I had just never heard it so succinct. And you called it the sled. Um, oh no, sled method, sled. Test. 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 So can you talk about the sled test?
0: Sure. And I just want to give credit where it's due. I, I stole all of this, of course, like <laughs> you do, uh, through, I think it was through making abortion unthinkable. And so it's, it's for four things. Sled is size, level of development, environment, and degree of dependency. So these would be the four ways that the unborn or the pre-born differ from a two-year-old. So size, how big you are. So, um, are men generally bigger than women? Yes. Does that make men more valuable than women? No. Uh, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar is a famous basketball player. He's you know seven foot five, weighed probably three hundred pounds. I'm five foot eleven. I weigh one hundred seventy pounds. But just because he's bigger than I am doesn't mean he's more valuable than I am. So size is irrelevant to value. A level of development. Uh, A four year old is less developed than a fifteen year old girl. A four year old has not developed the ability to bear life, while a 15-year-old young woman has developed that ability. So the 15-year-old is more developed. But does how old you are determine how valuable you are? Just because somebody's more developed, does that mean they're more valuable? The answer is no. Therefore, level of development is irrelevant to value. Environment, Uh, right now I'm in my office. Uh, Just recently, I was in my bedroom and I walked the, I don't know, 150 feet from one to the other. But just because my environment changed, I didn't change and my value didn't change. So sense does uh, where you are determine what you are. So I'm still the same human person in those two places. And so if that's true, then the seven or eight inch journey down the birth canal, that something can magically go from not having value to suddenly, or from not to having value seems fantastical and magical and certainly not scientific. So environment where you are, doesn't determine what you are, how valuable. And lastly, degree of dependency. Uh, the unborn, uh, the pre-born is very dependent on its mother. True. Uh, but why does that matter? Uh, conjoined twins oftentimes share organs, but you can't slit their throats just because they're dependent on each other for survival and also i would just add that generally how our law works is that the more dependent or weak a member of our society is usually the more the law protects them so an analogy would be uh, if a 16 year old tried to sue its mother for not feeding him uh, he might not make uh, because a six-year-old could feed themselves it's probably not going to hold up in court but if somebody saw a mother let's say neglecting her six-month-old and wasn't feeding them that could hold up in court and she could be held liable for that. In other words, we know that the six-month-old is more dependent on on its mother for survival than the the 16-year-old. And therefore, our law is more likely to defend the six-month-old. So by that logic, the weakest, most vulnerable, most dependent uh, members of the human species, the unborn, the law should protect them the most.
1: Can we talk about the development? So I, I know I've talked to somebody actually recently, this week, was one of my really good friends. I've known her since eighth grade, and she was like, "It's about viability for me." And I was trying to get. I was trying. I was trying to go through the develop uh, the sled test and everything. And she's like, "I don't. If you, um, if technology progresses so that at seven or eight weeks, it the baby could be viable, and technology can kind of help the baby and maybe, um, help grow the baby. So like then, she, cool. Abortion will be at seven or eight weeks. That's the line for me. But she said, you know, strong." hold on the viability like nope as soon as they're viable then abortion's bad but before that abortion's okay so what would you say to that
0: yeah there's a few things the first thing i just want to acknowledge that uh, dr peter singer who's the professor of ethics at princeton university who famously argued that you don't really have uh human value until you have a self-awareness which happens at about a year 18 months old and justifies infanticide all the way up to about a year old um he said that he thought the viability argument was very weak because Um, where you are determines how valuable you are. In other words, if you live in the Congo and you're born, I don't know, two or three months premature, that's a very different thing than being born in the United States, two or three months premature. And if you're near a a level one trauma hospital or a hospital that has the highest technology. So that's interesting. Number two, that also determines what year you were born in determines how valuable you are. (laughs) Because of course, (laughs) as science gets better, Mm -hmm. uh, we can, as you're saying, we move viability up earlier and earlier. So that just seems crazy that in 1000 AD, uh, because you know, when a child is born three months premature, uh, there's much more likely they weren't gonna live than today. That determined how valuable you are. Uh, I would use an analogy like, um, if let's say somebody asked me to watch their child in, uh, in the backyard, it's a two year old. And I take my eye off of them for a couple of seconds and they I, I hear a plop in the water and I think, oh no. And I look and they've fallen in the water, can't swim. Now in that moment, uh, the child's survival is totally dependent on who? Me. Totally dependent. Um, but, but it's not viable unless I jump in there. It's not viable <laughs> in underwater. <laughs> and so, um, it, but just because it's totally dependent on me, doesn't mean it has less value. Or another historical example would be Romans used to kill their young through what's called exposure. They thought it was bad to, to, to intentionally kill them. So they would just leave them out and in the, the wild. And the child would die very quickly, right? Um, they would die from an animal would come and eat it, or it would freeze to death. And so they were just exposing it to the elements. And, but, you know, a one day old is, is not viable on its own. It, it doesn't have the ability to lift its own head. And so therefore, um, it can it, it just can't live. It, it's It's dependent on us. So I think even after we're born, we still have this high degree of dependency. The last thing I would say about this is um, do we really want to build a culture like that? And I don't even like the word autonomy. Uh, the word autonomy means in Greek self-law. Auto is the Greek word for self. Nomos means law. And so um, if you learn a lot about human nature by the nature of a baby, which is a baby is radically dependent on other people to survive, for breast milk to changing its diaper to, I mean, just in every way possible, supporting its own head. And a lot of people begin life, uh, everyone begins life in diapers. And a lot of people end life in diapers. That's just how life is. (laughs) We're radically dependent on other people. Uh, There was a a book written by a philosopher whose name escapes me right now. And he wrote a book called Dependent Rational Animals. (laughs) And he's talking about human persons. Uh, We spend huge chunks of our lives really dependent on other people. And so when we see dependence as weakness, in other words, if you're not viable, then you don't have value. You can't fend for yourself. That to me strikes me as building a culture that's kind of scary, and okay. I think by that logic, of course, you could justify uh, killing people at the end of their life, euthanasia, which of course we see the rise of because oh they they take much more work to protect. So anyway, uh, that's just a commentary on that kind of reasoning. I think builds a culture that I think is certainly not a culture of life and love, but a culture that's uh, we're kind of all at odds with each other. Mm-hmm. And if you can't fend for yourself, you don't have value. Does that make sense?
1: I tried. You know, conveying all of this. And her response was more, yes, dependency, that's fine. But someone else can take care of the baby. You're forcing this mom to have a baby dependent on her. You're forcing the birth. And I was like, you did not just say force birth. Yeah. Um, but she did. She was like, yeah, you're forcing me to give birth. You're forcing this pregnancy. And so that's kind of more uh, along the lines of the bodily autonomy argument, which I'm sure we're going to get into in a little bit. But
0: yeah. And of course, um- Sex is the kind of behavior that when we engage in a logical consequences that a, a child could come from that. Mm-hmm. Um, this is some side uh, social commentary, just for your, but I think having a, the, the advent of the pill in the mid-1960s, which was cheap and efficient contraception, has in our minds split sex from childbirth. So I saw somebody debating Michael Knowles. She was a, either a, in nursing school or med school. And she said, just because I consented to sex... Doesn't mean I consented to pregnancy. And that's a curious thing to say, right? Just because I consented to uh being an MMA fighter doesn't mean I consented to bleeding, or just because I consented (laughs) to swimming doesn't mean I consented to getting wet. These things logically follow that by engaging in this behavior, it would it would make sense that um I I'm also responsible for the consequences of it. And of course, a man could not do that. A man could not say, well, I had sex with a woman because I wanted the pleasure of it. I didn't want the consequences of it. Therefore I don't think I should have to pay child support. And I tried my best to prevent that. <laughs> the, the law would say, well, by engaging in this behavior, you were in fact, um, open yourself to the possibility, logically, scientifically, biologically that a child would come from it. So I know people make that argument, but it's, it's, it's a curious thing to say.
1: Yeah. Unfortunately our society is just so focused on pleasure versus happiness. And, uh, it just has led to uh, wanting us or making us think that we can have sex with whatever, whoever, not whatever, sex with whoever we want um, and not have any consequences and not actually care about the person either. Or we can have sex with someone who is not going to be a good parent or we don't want to be parents with.
0: That's right. And to your point, you know, we misuse words all the time. And one of them is reproductive rights. It's just a bad thing, because, a bad thing. Word for it because, as far as I can tell, you can have sex with basically whoever you want in America, with the exception of you know children, but adults, consenting adults. I mean, that's basically what can happen in America. So, people have the right to reproduce with basically whoever they want. We're really saying, do, do you have the right to life? Um, and do 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 pre born children have the right to live? Mm-hmm. So,
1: well, we mentioned this earlier people pro life and pro choice are trying to make arguments most of them are usually emotional um but i have been actively trying to teach teenagers especially the valid and sound arguments to defend pro life but also to be able to address pro choice and pro life cuz i know a lot of i know a lot of teens that are trying to defend our faith to de- defend pro life but they make tons of logical fallacies while they're doing that so let's talk about some bad uh, pro-life and pro-choice arguments so what are some arguments that you've heard from both sides that can just be annihilated
0: uh well th- that it's that's a religious argument so you shouldn't impose your religious beliefs on us yeah um, again um, you can make the argument not talking about religion and just because people aren't religious doesn't mean they can't uh, recognize a good argument and do we want to have a good and just society so I'd say that uh, that doesn't make sense. Number two, um, that I as a man shouldn't talk about these issues. And I would just say um people have gender, but arguments do not. So <laughs> you should you should look at the argument. And a lot of people who are pro-choice, of course, have no problem with uh, Roe v. Wade, which was decided by nine men. So yeah. of course, when it's when it's in my favor, I like their arguments. When it's not in my favor, I don't like the arguments. But the point is that you should focus on the argument, not the sex or gender of the person making the arguments. Um obviously lots of uh, appeals to emotion, you know, Um, like a a mom's in a really bad situation. The child will be raised in poverty. Uh, It's it's a bad mom. And to that, um, there's a, there's a something called trot out a toddler, which is if something's not a good justification to kill something after birth, I would say it's not a good justification to kill something, someone before birth. And so I would just use the exact example they give, and I would just refer it to a a two-year-old. So like oh this is a bad mom or the child's gonna be raised in poverty. I'd say okay well, let's say we have a mom, she has a two year old. The child is in poverty. It is a bad mom. It's neglecting them. It? She leaves it in its urine for a day or two and doesn't change his diaper. I would say, is it ever permissible to kill that child? Well, well, no. Well, why not? Well, because uh, that would be murder, or that because that child has value. Ah, so then of course. The, what, what is the difference between that child and the unborn? And then we're kind of moving them into the sled test, right? Cause mm-hmm. the four ways they are. Right. Um, so I would say those are, uh, do you want to jump to your mind as far
1: as better? Oh, yeah. Uh, for starters, since we're, we started with the pro-choice arguments, the reincarnation argument, I know I talked to you about this. Cause I had a friend who was mm-hmm. just like, well, I believe that souls can be, or will, or will be reincarn- reincarnated. So who cares? The, the baby, the soul will just find a new body. Um, and at first I was stumped. And then I realized, okay, so that means I can just kill you and it doesn't That's matter. Right.
0: That's right. Yeah, just like things. I want more time to d- to think about this argument. So I'm just gonna kill you. <laughs> you're gonna <come> back,
1: <laughs> you stumped then, uh, me. That would be
0: just or okay. Yeah. You're- <laughs> yeah. And of course, by that logic, you could justify killing anyone. Cause like if you thought like, oh well, the soul's just coming back, you know.
1: I know. Well, if it- there's no consequence, uh yeah, you're you're ticking me off. So I'm just gonna end it right now. Uh, the making abortion illegal will not decrease abortion. It will only drive it underground and make it dangerous. I've heard that a lot. Um, especially right after Roe v. Wade was overturned. Um, I had so many people be like, Oh, well now women are going to die. And Alyssa Wells is a co-founder of plan C, which is this horrendous company that helps people access abortion pills. No matter where you are, it's quite an extensive website. you can go and they will tell you the legal restrictions in your company uh, in your state and help you get around them. They'll help you find all the loopholes and make sure you get abortion pills. And she said in an interview that her company debunks that theory because she has she has the access, I mean, or she will make sure you have access to abortion pills. So when people say women are gonna die, um that one gets me a little bit. And then uh, yeah, if, I,
0: if I could say words to that, yeah. Well, first of all um what is the point of the law so any woman dying of abortion is a tragic thing whether it's a legal abortion or legal abortion it's a, it's a tragic occurrence no doubt um, but of course the argument presumes that the unborn are not human right that it's safer to have a, a legal abortion but of course that again there's a famous argument between two to a pro-life and pro-choice person he said at least admit to me that if abortion is legal it's safer And the pro-life person retorted safer for who the mother of the child because somebody's always dying in the procedure it's it's the least safe operation you could ever have someone is always dying you Mm -hmm. know so it always so they're 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 presuming something that just quite frankly isn't true that the unborn is not human the other thing is if the law i I think most people follow the law whenever it was passed there's something between 350 and 650,000 abortions a year, within six years, it had jumped to 1.5 million. Right. And there's a famous speech by Martin Luther King Jr. that he gave at UCLA. And I love it. At one point, he's talking about that laws affect people. Sometimes people use the argument, we need to change the culture and then the laws will follow. And I think that's somewhat true, but laws also impact the culture. So they actually go back and forth. Mm-hmm. And he said, you know, the law cannot make a man love me, but it can prevent him from lynching me, which I think is pretty important. And so, uh, he said, and I think that's absolutely right. He said, the law may not change someone's heart, but it can uh, prevent the heartless or can restrain the heartless. And he goes on and on back and forth in this, which is right, most people follow the law. And if you um, make it easier to engage in a behavior that's not good, people are more likely to do it. People get hurt robbing banks every year. Should we therefore take away the laws that pr- protect uh, private property? And I also want to just point out that we say, well, you're imposing your beliefs on me um, that's how every law works. <laughs> that's literally how laws work. Uh, we think private property is valuable and there are people called thieves and they take our property. And then when we find them and prosecute them and send them to jail, we're the majority is imposing our morality on those people. That's just simply how law works. So when people say you're imposing views, I'd say, sure. Well, what's your point? Yeah. That, that's how every law works. So um, I would say for all of those reasons, um, it's not a good idea to say that just because abortion becomes illegal, you're just driving people down the ground. That's actually not true. Most people follow the law. And I would simply ask, was it a good thing in America that slavery was illegal in the north, even though it was legal in the south? In other words, if you were not live in the north, it was harder to get a slave. You had to travel down to the south to get one. Oh. So difficult buying and selling these people. Well, of course, is it good to buy and sell people? And if it's not making it harder to engage in that behavior is actually the point of the law. It's both a teacher and it's a deterrent. It tells us what we should value and deters from doing bad or evil things.
1: Have you heard the keep your rosaries off my ovaries?
0: I have seen that. I have seen that.
1: I had a laugh.
0: True. Yeah. Um, I actually
1: did meet somebody and I had, I, it was at a bridal shower. I probably shouldn't argue with people on a bridal shower, but I did. And we got into it and I, she basically relented like, okay, it is a human life. I just don't care. So that's not even, that's not even logical fallacy. That's just the tragedy of apathy. Um, But somebody I've had, unfortunately had the conversation where it is just kind of heartless. They're like, okay, yeah, it is a human, but I don't care what you do. And so that, then we get into moral relativism, another, you know, great, great topic for this. Um, Because I, so my, my friend is a self-proclaimed moral relativist and she's saying, why is it ever okay for someone else that I do not know to make decisions about my body to force me to have a body and the thought of not having control over my own body scares me. Can you respond to the woman have a right to do what they want with their own bodies?
0: Sure. I'll say a couple of things. One is uh, on a practical level, when a, when a woman takes a pregnancy test and she, let's say she wants to be pregnant, what is the test telling her? And when the test comes back in negative, what the test is saying to her is it's just your body. And the woman thinks, ah, oh, shucks, ah, oh, bummer, right? Because she wants to be pregnant. But if it comes back and it's positive, what the test is telling her is you are no longer just your body. There's now another body inside of your body. And that's why she's excited, right? Uh, Women don't have a product of conception showers. (laughs) (laughs) They have baby showers, right? So I would say that. The second thing is, there's an article written called uh, When Human Life Begins by Dr. Maureen Kondik. And in it, she says, we know something new comes into being through embryology, through uh, a cell's composition, what it's made of, and its behavior, what it does. So let's focus on behavior first. What is the nature of sperm is to penetrate something. That's what sperm is doing in a woman's body. It's looking for the ovum, the egg, it's penetrated. What is um, the nature of the ovum or the egg It's to be penetrated. Once you have sperm egg fusion, within one second, there's a new composition that comes into being. Within a minute or two, the wall, so to speak, of the ovum hardens itself and will no longer allow any other sperm to penetrate. In other words, we see new behavior. So it's a new composition, new behavior, which he says from an embryological standpoint, aha, something new has come into being with its own unique DNA uh, with uh, 46 chromosomes, right? And it's now beginning to organize itself, metabolize, so on and so forth. So I would say scientifically, it's very clear that this is not merely just a part of the woman's body, but it's in fact a new body inside of her body. So by that very same logic, if you think it's bad to tell people what they can do with their bodies, well then uh, scientifically, then why do we have the right to kill this other body? Just because it's inconvenient or we don't want it. So I would say by that logic, uh, we would want to therefore protect the unborn. Yeah, I'd be remiss if I didn't say, Sammy, that um, we've built a culture through all sorts of things through promiscuity and pornography and contraception where we we've convinced ourselves, we should be able to have sex without consequences. Yeah. And so therefore that's why someone can look you in the eye and say, um, yeah, okay. Okay. It's a human life. I see you have lots of little arguments and they're pro-life and scientific, but I don't care. (laughs) As as Trent Horn has famously said for 99% of abortions, it's not because a life is in danger, but a lifestyle is in danger. And the lifestyle is that I should be able to have sex without consequences Mm -hmm. and um, pre-born children um, are put a cramp in that, you know, because the logical consequence of this behavior, it could be an unborn child.
1: Yeah. I got to talk to Jason ever actually about how the sexual revolution impacts our view on abortion because of exactly what you just said. (laughs) Shameless plug. If you want to tune in to episode four. (laughs) (laughs) So what about pro-life arguments? Um, I, I have, heard the uh what if you had been aborted and that's just not even it's not like we would oppose infant side by saying well what if you had been killed when you were a newborn like it's that's not a good argument
0: uh yeah yeah so you're saying when the pro-life person has virtually what if you had been aborted yeah
1: so the pro-life because i've heard pro-life people try to defend the pro-life movement by saying well what if you had been aborted as if that's going to make them be like oh wow let me reflect on that
0: yeah, it's certainly not like a, a deep philosophical argument. Maybe it's kind of an appeal to, isn't it a gift to have human life? And then yeah. somebody lets you have the human life. But yeah, I agree with you. It's not, it's not a kind yeah. of.
1: And then what about adoption? I know this is also not really an argument, but um, I think if adoption wasn't legal, because maybe there's some parts of the country where it's not even an option that wouldn't mean it'd be okay to abort the child. But also I think it really downplays the difficulty and um, seriousness of that decision to give your child up for adoption. So I think that's another thing that maybe it's not a logical fallacy, but it's more that's not, it's not an appropriate response to a pro-choicer. Um, well, do you, do you have any pro-life arguments that, uh, have you heard any logical fallacies coming from the pro-life side?
0: Gosh, uh, though all the ones that we've covered, I think are good. Um, yeah. I mean, I think people say things like, well, it has little, it has little toes or it has little fingernails, which <laughs> to be honest, sometimes that if you ever saw the movie, Juno, that's basically what convinces oh, yeah. her uh, because I think, I think it makes it real. Mm-hmm. Um, I could probably use that just to segue and you know, the, the debate among the pro-life about the use of graphic images and mm-hmm. father Frank Pavone is fond of saying, unless America sees abortion, it will not change its mind about abortion. And so how those two thoughts were connected in my mind, in case you're wondering is in the movie, Juno, when she says, well, your baby has fingernails. I think maybe that we actually think about it being real or we can imagine it as being like, Oh, uh, cause when we just call it a product of conception or a clump of cells. That's it's kind of hard to imagine what that looks like, right? It's some yeah. sort of amorphous thing. But when you say your baby has fingernails, it's like, Oh, I, I hadn't really thought about that. So I think that's probably, I think you have to uh, be judicious about how you use images, but I think that would probably be an argument for uh, why that can be very helpful in, and pro-life arguments.
1: Yeah. I read actually in The New Yorker, which was interesting, that the burden of proof is on the pro-choice side because we, I'm going to have to look and make sure I don't mess up this quote, because we know from embryology that abortion kills a unique member of the human species. So this means that the affirmative case for abortion rights is inherently exceptionalist, demanding a suspension of a principle that prevails in practically every other case, which I was really surprised The New Yorker actually wrote that um but i think it's also really good to think about that the burden is on them but also their case is built on exceptions does that make sense
0: yeah you know, are, 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 you, are you saying exceptions like rape or incest or what do you mean
1: um it's more like even uh when you said the whole with the whole pregnancy test and the baby showers. If the woman wants it, yay, it's a baby. If it's not, if they don't want it, it's not a baby. And yes, with the exceptions of rape and incest. And then there it's just really just all of a uh, based on an emotional desire, it seems like a desire for the baby, or um, like we said, the convenience. I don't know, maybe I'm not making sense. Well, I but would we say this
0: <laughs> that uh, um if we don't use objective criteria by determining when human life begins, science and biology, then we have to use, I think, subjective criteria. And that's very dangerous <laughs> mm-hmm. because uh, who decides and what criteria are they using? So if we're not gonna say like Dr. Moon uh essay, like when does human life begin, follow embryology, that at the sperm egg fusion, new composition, new behavior, then, um, well then human life is just whoever has the power, what they determine human life is. But I would say by that logic, we've justified slavery We've just justified the Holocaust. We've justified the degradation of women, and so on and so forth. Like when a group of people in power says, "Well, you don't have the right skin color. You're not the right ethnicity. You're not the right gender or sex." Um, do you see what I mean? So, if we don't use oh, yeah. objective criteria, then it's just this subjective of who has the power and who gets to decide.
1: Very which I think really. is,
0: I think history is rife with examples of that, and uh, it's it can lead to very horrific things.
1: Oh, yeah. It's Machiavelli's might to right. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Which ironically,
0: I would say, of course, is the logic of why, uh, which makes a rape so terrible, is a stronger yeah. uh, member is imposing their will on a weaker, more vulnerable member of the human species. Is unfortunately the same logic of an abortion, that uh, a stronger member of the human species is imposing its will on our weakest, smaller member of uh, the human species. Uh, rape is a terrible thing. Uh, It's horrific. It should be, um, you know, to the fullest extent of law, the person should be prosecuted. But um, oftentimes in America, the the rapist doesn't get the death penalty. And so if if the guilty party doesn't get the death penalty, then why would the innocent party get the death penalty? And, you know, we don't, we don't punish you for the crimes of your father. And uh, I've really never understood this is that i think sometimes in those cases, it's come across as compassionate or loving to offer the woman abortion. Uh, but uh r- um rape is an act of violence, and you don't heal from an act of violence through another act of violence, which the abortion is an act of violence. And the the argument, well, um, you know, the, the if the child looks like the, the abortionist, uh, the father, um, maybe that would be traumatic. And to that I would say, um, let's say there was a, a town and um uh, there was a man who committed all these crimes, and then um, and a lot of people were wounded by him and then he went off and died, but he had a son and his son grew up and he looked like the spitting image of his dad. People said, we want to hurt you or kill you or expel you. Well, just because he, he looks like his father or just because he reminds you of him, that that's not a good argument for why he suddenly doesn't have human rights or dignity or should be protected. So i say for all of those reasons, uh, that's why abortion, even in the case of rape, doesn't make sense or is not just.
1: Yeah. And thank you for touching on that. I was going to actually ask about that too. Um... Here's the,
0: here's a fun one that I, a little story I've told before If I can, uh, let's imagine that a woman is, uh, has sexual relations with her husband. And then right around that time, she's, she's raped and, um, she finds out shortly that she's, she's pregnant. And so she's very afraid, uh, that, that she's carrying the rapist child. So she goes to the doc, to the hospital and they run some tests and realize, no, it's in fact, it's her, it's her husband's child. And She says, oh. Thank God. So anyway, uh, months later, uh, she brings the baby to term. She gives birth. They take the baby. They run some tests. And then they say, we are so sorry. It's we're actually, we were wrong. It's actually not your husband's baby. It's, it's, it's the rapist and your child. Would she have the right to kill that baby? And if the answer is no, why not? And most people say no. And the reason why not is because, well, because it's, it's a human being, even though the fact that it's father is a criminal, even though it came into the world to this terrible um, circumstance, it, it's still a human being and it it still has dignity, even it comes to the world. And you know, I've heard, you know, people that have are children of rape, that, that they, they're kind of offended. Like you're saying, my life doesn't have value or has less value just because I came into this world and um, terrible circumstances. So that, right. that, Anyway, I think that's a helpful story to get at. Uh, yeah. We all have value, even if we come to the world through a terrible circumstance.
1: Playing devil's advocate, though, I think a lot of people would say, well, that baby was already born. So it's
0: certainly, certainly. Uh, then we want to slide into the sled test.
1: Yep. But yes, <laughs> but, uh, uh,
0: that, of course, begs the question of now how, how are they different than the unborn? And then you're off and running.
1: Yeah. So cool. Well, anything else you have to add? Any good stories?
0: Um, this one I've always uh, loved. And this is something that uh, Stephanie Connors, the artist formerly known as Stephanie Gray, uh, <laughs> has said. And I just love it. And this is when people say, well, uh, the unborn is not human because, and then they fill in the blank. Doesn't have a brain, doesn't have a heartbeat, right? Even though it develops things very early. But let's just say uh, a brain. Well, oh, the unborn doesn't have value because it can't think. And then you ask, well, why can't it think? Well, they look at you like you're dumb. Well, because it doesn't have a brain. Like, and why doesn't it have a brain? Uh, because it's, it's too young. It doesn't it doesn't live long enough to develop one. Aha. So we take like a one cell human embryo from like a one cell amoeba. The reason why the amoeba can't think is because of what it is. The reason why the one cell human embryo can't think is because of how old it is. If you give it enough time, it will develop a brain and the capacity to think. So in other words, Uh, By that logic, what abortion is, is just the justification of stronger, more developed members of a species imposing its will on weaker, less developed members of the human species. And if I saw somebody walk up to another man who was innocently standing there and a man punched him in the face, I would be very upset. Like, why did he do that? That's unjust. But if I saw him walk up to a two-year-old and punch a two-year-old in the face, I'd be even more upset. Why? Because it's more defenseless. It's weaker. It's less developed. By that same logic, then all the more should we defend the preborn, and the unborn because they're the weakest, and most defenseless members of the human species.
1: I have this like daydream of someone trying to tell me that it's not human. And this is a very probably juvenile argument, but I just, you know how in high school we all had like the life cycle of a frog and like the chart, you know, probably around the time where we like how to dissect it. Um I want to, like, I just want to tell somebody like, it's not like anyone looks at a tadpole and says, it's not a frog. Like, it's just, for some reason though, it's like when it's puppies uh, or it's the baby turtles, it's fine. Like that is the species, but when it comes to humans, like, no, no, when the less developed isn't human. And I think some people try to pivot and say, oh, it's not a person yet. Um, So maybe could you talk to the, the personhood argument a little bit?
0: Sure. So uh, first, to to say what we said earlier, uh, there was laws passed. I think in the seventies or the eighties. Uh, this is when the bald eagle was an endangered species, and they passed laws that made it a federal crime uh, to kill a bald eagle. But th- that same law also protected the bald eagle egg, and you also got punished if you smashed a bald eagle egg. So whether you shot a bald eagle out of the sky, or you came with a bald eagle and smashed it. Why? Yeah, interesting. Because the law was recognizing that it's the same species. That's an embryonic eagle. That's what an eagle looks like at this stage of development, and that's what an eagle looks like at that stage of development. Right. We both know it's the same species. So the pro-life cause is really just saying we think the law should apply to the uh, the, the American, <laughs> like it applies to the to the national bird, <laughs> should apply <laughs> to all the national citizens.
1: God so bless all of America. Us have the same
0: protection of the bald eagle. So I think that's very interesting. As far as human versus person, as people will say, I think it's a human. I don't think it's a person yet. I would say, what's the difference? And I would also acknowledge, so there we might move into the slide test. It doesn't have a heart, it doesn't have a brain, it's not developed yet, it's too small, it's a clump of cells. So this is a clump of cells, well, you're just a clump of cells. Sure, you have a few trillion more, but uh, just because you're a bigger clump of cells doesn't mean you're, now I think we're more than a clump of cells, but just using their their, their reasoning. Um, And the other thing is I would just say, we'll look at human history, and those are the very same arguments we use to justify slavery. Exact same arguments. They don't have the right skin color. Uh, it's in our interest to enslave them, um, so on and so forth. They're not developed mentally. We, we made all these things to say, oh, they're human, but they're not a person yet. Uh, we did that against Jews uh, in the Nazi Germany. Uh, they, they called them untermenschen, subhuman or life unworthy of life. And uh, yeah, the, the Jew is not fully human and therefore we can do this to them. So I would just acknowledge to the person, again, if we're not using objective criteria to find the human person, then we have to use some subjective criteria. And then who gets to decide that? And I would say in the name of that, we've justified horrific evils in the history of the world. So when people said, I would just say, well, what's the difference? And um, I would say, and be cautious because those arguments can be used against us.
1: Yeah. I think often we can respond to any pro-choice person by just asking questions. I'm not necessarily good at that, but taking the Socratic route of, you know, so what is an abortion? What is a human person? Uh, what is a, what makes a person and just turning it back on them? Because again, bringing it back, they have the burden of proof.
0: That's right. And for all of us, generally when we're losing an argument. We change the subject. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So we just keep switching. (laughs) And so how do you feel about gun loss? Exactly. So, so in pro-life, really staying on what is the unborn, what is the unborn? I think it does, that does a, a, it's very helpful because you're staying on the the heart of the issue.
1: Yeah. So father, where have you seen God in the past couple of weeks with the pro-life movement?
0: Oh gosh, that is a really good question. Where I've seen God in the pro-life in the last couple of weeks. Well, I would just say it's a, it's an historic moment, you know, it's the passage of Roe v. Wade. It's an historic moment. And uh, it's, it's quite a time to be alive. And as you mentioned earlier in this interview, uh, you saw me give a talk to the St. Tristan teens, and it's been a long time since I've done kind of formal pro life apologetics. And there's kind of fear, you know, like, gosh, it's been a really long time, and I don't want to be more confusing to them, you know? So I want to make sure I got all my ducks in a row and I was reviewing some of this stuff. And um, I would say there's a lot of really good resources out there. And I just have the courage. To kind of move out there, and uh, God is with us. One of my friends, Father Frankie, always says uh, uh, the Holy Spirit comforts the uncomfortable, and uh, oftentimes he finds in his own life that when we step out to be uncomfortable, that's when the Holy Spirit shows up to comfort us. So it's just a nice adage to remind her, like, let's have the courage to uh, defend defend life. Let, let me say something. This popped in my mind, but I thought it was too provocative, so I didn't. You know, like <laughs> keep your rosaries off my off um, off my, uh, my ro- keep your rosaries off my ovaries. Yeah. yeah. Uh, for us, following the syllogism, it's always wrong to intentionally kill an innocent being. Abortion is the of killing an innocent being. My mom to say something like, keep your knives out of their spines. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, yeah. Like, uh, rosaries are, you know, like, that's, that's, we're, once I'm imposing your beliefs on somebody, I'm mm-hmm. imposing your knife into someone's skull. I'd say that's uh, yikes or sucking out their brain. And that's, what occurs in partial birth abortions or some abortions in the third trimester. So uh, anyway, I thought it was a little too punchy. So I thought, why don't I just uh, pull away from this? But
1: we like punchy. I'm not really a one to, to shy away from the punchy. (laughs) Well, thank you father for coming on this podcast. And I just want to thank you because you, I want to affirm you that you always make me feel seen, known, and loved, and I think that you have a gift with that. You're very good at being present with whoever is in front of you, and I just really appreciate that. As you know, your parishioner and just you know, friend.
0: <laughs> yes, well, that's very kind of you. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for having me too.
1: Thank you. Bye.